Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 460 with David Kamlos. David is talking about approaches for problem solving, particularly the real tricky, extra complex challenges. You'll learn one, the three types of challenges that exist and how to approach them. Two, the 10-step process to tackle challenges faster and more effectively. And three, how to structure a problem-solving meeting that gets the best results. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items that we've referenced, it's over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep460. And I think we got it working now. So right in your app, if you click details and then description or episode notes, depending on your app, you can just push that button and get right to that as well as some of the cool links to things we've mentioned with one tap instead of typing out or tapping out dot com slash EP. You get the idea. It's a quicker way to do it. But if you don't mind, it's also at awesomeatyourjob.com slash EP460. And either way, you can access the goods. And that's cool. And if you do visit awesomeatyourjob.com or are you playing around on your app, I recommend you check out some of our favorite episodes. Those are labeled A, B, C, D, E, F. They're in between episode zero start here and episode one with Maui Asgadam, who just sold his company, Maui Learning, to ACT, which is awesome. I'm so proud of the guy. I've got the coolest friends and I'm so happy to get to share some of their wisdom and expertise with you. Um, cool stuff. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about David, huh? David Kamlos is the CEO of Syntegrity. He's an entrepreneur, an early stage investor, and a speaker who's helped change the way many global leaders approach their top challenges. From Fortune 100 transformation to international aid, content creation and sports entertainment, to improving access to life-saving products, David advises top leaders and enterprises on how to dramatically accelerate solutions and execution on their defining challenges. He frequently speaks on topics related to complexity, fast problem solving and mobilization and scaling talent. He lives with his family in Toronto. Big thanks to David for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no. No, LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. And now here's David. David, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Such a pleasure, Pete. You've got a book, Cracking Complexity. What's the story here? Cracking Complexity is uh, basically a book about 18 years of experience and how to get after big challenges quickly, uh, whether you're a manager, a director, a vice president, uh, someone who's writing policy, someone who's an analyst, someone who's an up-and-comer, a high-potential there's ways in which to get after 
the defining challenges that move you forward in your career, that make you a big contributor, that make you a great leader. And there's actually a formula for how to get after big challenges. Mm -hmm. This book chronicles the formula and gives examples and cases along the way to make it interesting. Now, I'm thinking back to my strategy consulting days. Complexity was almost like a dirty word for us in terms of if a business has a lot of complexity, that usually meant that a lot of mistakes and suboptimal resource allocations were happening. So when you use the word complexity, what do you mean by it? We mean something specific. We mean a multidimensional, lots of moving parts, human challenge. We actually borrow from Dave Snowden um, from his Kinevin framework, where he says there's a difference between complicated challenges and complex challenges. So simple challenges people solve on their own every day by connecting the dots, whether they've seen the challenge or not. Um, when you're dealing with a complicated challenge, it might be new to you, but it's, it's a solved challenge. It's a challenge that's been solved many times before. For example, um, a simple challenge is driving a car. A complicated challenge is fixing a broken car. Okay. You may not know how to do it, but there's lots of mechanics out there who that's all they do 24 seven, 365, right? Mm -hmm. So the right approach is to take your broken car to the expert, the mechanic. Same thing when you're also implementing an accounting software system. Don't try to figure it out yourself. Bring in the experts who do that for a living. Complex challenges are always the defining challenges, whether it's turning around a product or saving money or figuring out a new policy for government or you know, figuring out how to grow faster as an organization or gel better as a team or understand your customers better um, and deliver a great customer experience. All of those are complex challenges, which, you know, if there was a playbook, if there was a recipe, if there was a mechanic, so to speak, that you could just take this challenge to, he or she could just fix it like they fixed all those other situations, that'd be great, but that just doesn't exist. So complex challenges are typically the head scratchers, the ones that you have to figure out fresh each time and where it's not just enough to solve with a really good solution, a really good plan. Uh, it, you really need a, a big group of people bought into the solution if you're going to see sustainable execution happen. If you're going to see people change their behavior, do what they're supposed to do, you need, you need them bought in. You can't just tell them what to do. You need them bought in. Okay, sure. Well, could you maybe rattle off three or four or five examples of a complex challenge for us just so we're really thinking about the same thing here? Sure. You might be trying to figure out how to stem the opioid epidemic in your state, or you might be trying to figure out how to deal with mental health challenges in your hospital, or you might be trying to figure out how to grow your product faster, capture more market share, or you know what, sh what will customers notice in the customer experience and how do you get your company to or your team to deliver a unified uh, customer experience. Those are examples of complex challenges that are really common, uh, whether you're in a small company, a medium-sized company, a large company, whether you're in a government, you're always trying to figure out how to do better, uh, more effectively, more efficiently. Mm -hmm. Okay, good deal, thank you. Mm -hmm. Well, so then you say that leaders often handle complexity the wrong way or the linear way. So could you kind of orient us to, so with sort of the linear approach, look, sound, feel like versus a non-linear way? Yes. Well, I'll give you an example. I mean, let's say you're a car company and you, you decide that you are going to stand out from all the other car companies by delivering an, an exceptional uh, experience for people who are buying cars, people who are coming into the store to get their cars maintained or serviced. And that's the way you're going to 
stand out from the crowd because quality is not necessarily that big a difference these days, right? Many cars are made well. Mm-hmm. The linear way to approach this would be to do a lot of research first and maybe maybe strike a task force and have them do research or call in a market research firm to figure out like what do customers care about in the car buying process or what do customers care about when they walk into a dealership to have their car serviced. You would interview a lot of people. You might take different approaches to interview young people who are buying cars, older people who are buying cars, uh, people who've never bought a car and just ask them to think about how they'd buy a car. You might do a lot of um, synthesis around what's going on out there, who the competition is, um, what kind of new car companies are coming out, what kind of new car companies are allowing you to test cars differently, buy them online, etc. And then you'd start to get to the point where you're um, making recommendations and level setting other people in your organization on what you've discovered and then going back to the drawing board to make better recommendations and doing, you know, readouts and more interviews and then postulating like, well, here's what I think we should do. And then when you're done, you would have uh, a persuasion campaign on your hands, basically. Now it's time to convince everybody who wasn't involved in my research and interviews and synthesis and thinking and recommending and going back to the drawing board. Now, now here, now I got to get people on board with what my recommendations are, what my task force's recommendations are, what my consulting company's recommendations are. And those recommendations will have taken a long time to get to, and mm. they may be excellent recommendations. They probably are excellent recommendations, but the linear approach to solving, um, basically takes a long while, places the onus on a small group of people, whether it's an internal, group of people or an external group of people, your team or your consulting firm. Um, and by the time you get to, you know, the brass tacks, what should we do to drive a better customer experience? You have to persuade a lot of people who were not brought along for the ride. The more novel way to do things, the better way to do things in the face of complex challenges, the nonlinear way, is to involve all those people who you would contact for the research, involve all those people you would interview um, involve the people who are going to make the decisions, involve the people who are going to make the recommendations, and so on and so forth, all together, all at once. And by involving them all together, all at once, you would basically help them get to a shared understanding of what really matters, what's really going on, what what doesn't matter so much about customers and what they care about in the car buying experience, the car service experience. You'd have a lot of people challenge their assumptions together, all in the same room, eyeball to eyeball. And it would take a fraction of the time People could, you know, collide with one another, if you will, interact with one another um, so that by the time they finish coming up with what they think will really move the needle on the car purchasing and car servicing customer experience in a way to help your company stand out from the pack, they would not only have cracked the nut, but actually have bought into what they've they've solved, the solution they're putting forth. So now you say all the people all together all at once. Now, couldn't that be hundreds or thousands of people? It could be. Uh, generally speaking, though, from my experience, you want to be working in groups of 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 people uh, all together all at once. And sometimes you have to work with several groups of that size to spread. But generally speaking, when you bring together a cross section of the organization and experts and advisors and uh, stakeholders from around the organization all together, um, it takes 30, 40 people to really be representative of the culture and of the system that you're trying to solve for. And so you can actually get to a solution with far fewer people. 
Then the challenge is how do you get all those other people aligned? And there's ways to do that that are also faster than what we're accustomed to by having people interact together in smaller groups, but spread across your organization. Mm -hmm. So I guess I'm thinking in this car example, there could be multiple customers and multiple dealers and multiple sales staff at headquarters and multiple marketing people. And then people like yourself, you know, uh, who used to work at management consulting firms or who are in management consulting firms, people who work for uh, car research companies. You might bring someone in from Google. Uh, You might bring someone in from a completely different industry who has also shaped a specific customer experience and learned along the way what what could work. And just to, to spur the innovative thinking, there's there's actually um, an important concept for your listeners called requisite variety. And what requisite variety says, only variety can destroy variety. And that's really, really important. And it's, it's not buzzwordy. It's, it's really important, something for the rest of your careers. When you're dealing with a, a big challenge, it's typically a multidimensional, lots of moving parts kind of challenge, like this car company trying to improve the consumer experience. Um, you have to be as multidimensional as that challenge if you're trying to really crack the nut on that challenge. And the way you do that is by tapping into the right variety of people. I guess what I'm just sort of imagining here is I think that we could have 20 to 60 dealers alone or 20 to 60 customers alone. But you're proposing in this world that we've got 20 to 60 people, which is everybody, all st- across all stakeholders. Yep, you could. And again, you don't have to look at this as something exotic, right? I'm going to bring together 60 people once and never again. You could bring together 60 dealers. They want to do better. You can bring together 30 dealers and 30 company people. You could bring together 20 dealers. And you know, the nice thing here is that when you're solving for something important and complex, Typically, people have a stake in the outcomes, right? They may see things differently. People may see the car buying and car servicing experience and what to do about it differently, whether they're an owner of a dealership or the car company or the sales force or what have you, but they all share a stake in getting it right. And when you bring a group of people together, they can determine what are the things they have to do together to make a change. They can also determine what are the things they should try. And when you try different things, when you commit to trying new things and actually tracking how those new um, experiments are doing, you can actually double down on the ones that are working and get rid of the ones that aren't. And when you double down on the ones that are working, you can spread them to other people who didn't necessarily have a hand in coming up with that experiment in the first place, you only brought together 50 or 60 people or 20 or 30 people or on small teams, 10 people. But now that the 10 people have solved for something and tried something and it's worked, that'll spread much faster. Mm -hmm. I guess I'm still just visualizing the room. I have 20 to 60 people in this room all together all at once, Mm -hmm. but I could also have 20 to 60 people who are all the same, like all dealers are all customers. So how's this working? Yeah, you would want to have, again, the right variety of people. You'd want to have a a diverse group of people. So as a manager or as a leader trying to get after a challenge, if you're the car company uh, leader who's tasked with figuring out, you know, what should the customer experience be, you should be looking at who are some of the dealers I'm going to bring together, who are some of the sales folks, some of the marketing folks, some of the folks who've done the research on buying patterns, um, 
and so on and so forth altogether. You wouldn't want to just keep it at just dealers or just company people or just sales folks. You'd want to have a diverse group of people who can see the challenge of delivering a better customer experience from every angle. I guess what I'm imagining here is if I have a dozen different kinds of stakeholders, then I might only have one, two, three, four of each. And that's fine? That is fine. Okay. Absolutely, Pete, because to solve the challenge, you don't need 30, 40, 50 people of each particular you know, constituency. Mm-hmm. You need a handful of individuals. Um, in our book, Cracking Complexity, we talk about the 12 zones of variety and all the different characteristics that inform those 12 zones. And when you go through the 12 zones, whether I'm bringing people together from functions or geographies or business units, people from the board or strategy folks or operational folks or outside folks like consultants, advisors, and so forth, it allows you to think through, who should I be bringing into my meetings, even in small settings? Um, and you don't need, as you say, 15, 20, 30. You can have a handful of each constituency to really get after the challenge. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, maybe let's zoom out a little bit. So you got a 10-step process here. Could you kind of give us the one or two sentences per step overview of how this goes down, and then we'll dig into some more? The first step is to acknowledge the complexity. So a lot of people um, would rather not acknowledge that something is multidimensional, is a human challenge. It's going to be a difficult one. It can't just be solved the normal way. And so they go down the wrong path in the approach they take. Uh, one thing that, that we like to say is it's not the problem you're solving, it's how you're solving the problem. And so you have to know what kind of challenge are you up against. And when it's a complicated challenge, you should bring in the experts. When it's a complex challenge, you have to take a different approach. And that's the approach that I'll talk through now. But the first step is to acknowledge that you are dealing with a complex challenge. Same old, same old, won't work on it. Need a different approach. All right. The next step, once you know it's a complex challenge, let's say it's about growing faster. Um, you know, you'd, you'd want to construct a really, really good question. That's the second step in the formula. And so your question could be, what must we do starting now? And over the next six months to grow by 15% over the next two years. Or you could have a different question, but it would be a growth-oriented question. And the question serves as the invitation and as the um, guideline to the people that you've invited, who we spoke of just previously, those different constituencies. The third step is to say, well, if this is the question that I'm trying to answer, what do we have to do over the next three months to grow by 10 or 15% over the next 18 months? Who are all the right people? Who are all the right solvers? What's the right variety of solvers that I need to target? And so when you think through who are all the people I need to target, you want to think about the usual suspects, but you also want to think about the non-usual suspects, those people who are inside your organization who don't necessarily get called into these conversations, like people from the field, for example or someone who worked for a competitor, or people from outside your organization, like a futurist or a consultant, who may not necessarily have been in that conversation with you had you not thought about targeting all the right variety of people. The next step is to localize the solvers. So localize them, bring them together. There's a lot of really good technology out there to have conversations in small groups. But what we find is face-to-face on the really important challenges is really important. And then the fifth step is to eliminate the noise. Before you bring people together, 
you got to make sure that you circulate some sort of a fact base, some sort of level setting language to get people as far as possible, even before they get together. Um, you can do that with pre-reads. You can do that with videos. You can have a conference call to level set folks. You can send out a glossary of terms. You can do all of the above. You can do none of the above. Um, it's really important, though, to think about how can I get a diverse group of people who don't necessarily see things the same way, who speak different languages, how can I eliminate some of that noise before we get together, knowing that I won't be able to eliminate all the noise? Now, the next step is once people are together and they know what the question is, they know they're going to talk about what, do we, what can we do over the next three months to grow faster? What the next step is really important. Don't predetermine the agenda. Let your team, whether it's six people, 16 people, 26, 36, 56 people, agree on the topics they think they need to talk about, they think they need to explore in order to answer your question about growing faster. When you let the people themselves, having brought the right group of people together, when you let them determine what they have to explore, the ownership starts right, right away. And the engagement starts right away in contrast to predetermined agendas, which can often bias the outcomes. Mm -hmm. Then we say, put people on a collision course. What that means is when you bring 20 people together, Pete, or 60 people, or even 10 people, you really have to make sure all of those people are going to interact with each other many times. So if you bring together 20 people, you don't want five people who are really keen on figuring out how to grow faster, or how to deliver a better customer experience. You don't want the five keen people to be talking to each other constantly with the rest of the others, you know, checked out pretty much, whether it's because they're just not engaged, um, they may be introverted, not feeling very comfortable um, contributing in that particular way. For whatever reasons, hierarchy may be dominating, the loudest voices may be dominating. To put people on a collision course means to make sure that everyone is bumping into everyone many times in conversation. Because if you take a few steps back in the formula, you targeted the right group of people for specific purpose. You said, I need these people, the usual suspects and the non-usual suspects, if I'm going to solve this fast. And if you brought them together, if you went to lengths to bring them face to face, make sure that they're all engaging with each other many times. Now, another, uh, step in the formula is once they're engaging with each other many times, you want to make sure that you are giving them a kick at the can a variety of times on the same subject. So if they've said, we got to talk about X, we got to talk about Y, we got to talk about Z, um, you know, make sure they're talking about those topics three, four times, not just one kick at the can, many kicks at the can. And then we don't just make sure that people are bumping into each other many times. We don't just make sure that we've got the right group of people talking about the right topics that they've identified as the right topics to discuss on a question they all care about. You want to make sure that they're having really, really candid dialogue. So what we do and what you can do very easily, whether you're doing it this way or in small meetings, we assign people to teams on topics as members and critics and observers. Hmm. And those people play those roles an equal number of times. So it's a fair approach on a variety of topics. Members, their job is to really advance the topic as far as they can. Critics are in the room. You can think about it as a, a round table. 
where the members are at the table. There's a panel of critics sitting right behind them, listening very carefully, and then giving them critique, helping them do better. And then you can imagine a group of observers at the back of the room just listening, not being able to contribute. And, you know, what we're really trying to um, create is, is a purposeful, deliberate, controlled explosion amongst all these people, an explosion of brain power, people listening differently, people contributing differently, people um, hearing each other differently, learning differently, and much more efficiently and effectively having very transparent dialogue, very candid conversation about the things that matter. So when you acknowledge the complexity and you form it in the form of a question and you bring together the right people, you bring them together, you eliminate the noise, you get them telling you what they need to discuss to answer the question, you put them in, a, in, in meetings where they can collide with each other many times and you have really good dialogue amongst them while they're colliding, you get clarity and insights and you know action, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's good stuff. Now, let's see, there's a few things I want to follow up here now. So we say construct a really, really good question. What makes a question really, really good? And what are some things to watch out for and that are kind of inadequate when it comes to your questions? That in itself is a great question. Oh, thank you. Yes. So you want your questions to embed one or more goals. So, you know, what do we have to do to hit 20% growth? It could be, what do we have to do to hit 30% growth profitably? It could be, what do we have to do to double the business while remaining a great place to work or a top employer of choice? Um, it could be, how do we ensure, um, you know, all Americans have access to safe and affordable health care? You know, the adjectives that you use have to be very deliberate. When you talk about the we in the question, what must we do? You have to be very specific about who the we is. Is it the team? Is it the business unit? Is it the enterprise? Is it the society? You want to be very specific about that. A good question has a well thought through time horizon. Is it, you know, what do we need to do now and over the next 18 months? Is it what do we have to do now and over the next 90 days to get the full benefit out of the merger? The time horizon is really important because the recommendations that you get is going to be geared towards the time horizon. And then a good question has stretch goals, but not unreasonable goals. Uh, a good question has stretch goals that make people feel that they can hit those goals, but things have to change in contrast to unreasonable goals, which just sort of deter people from wanting to even start to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so then when it comes to the, the, the member, the observer and the critic, so how does that kind of play out with regard to, okay, you've, you have a subtopic subcommittee, like, could you sort of spell out just sort of how many people are talking about something and how would you divide those numbers of people into those roles? Yeah. Let's say you're in a, in a meeting, you're having a meeting with 10 people. You know, I would say assign, um, five of them as members, assign three of them as critics, and then assign two of them as observers. And of course, those people will change roles when you go to your next topic, mm-hmm. right? But on this topic, talking about cost structure or brand or message or segment or whatever you're talking about, have five members at the round table, three critics sitting just behind them, listening intently, and two observers near the back, not saying a word, listening very, very carefully. The 
let, let the members have a 15, 20 minute conversation, really digging into the topic, whatever they're talking about, and then ask them to pause and then invite the critics for a minute or two each to provide their critique. And they can criticize, you know, critique the process. You know, John seems to be dominating, uh, or, you know, I'd like to hear more from Jerry or Mary, um, or I disagree with that recommendation, or did you know that, um, or this worked really well in, that's the kind of critique you're looking for. And make sure you're not letting the critics become members. You just want them to give the members what they need to hear in order to advance their own conversation when they take the conversation back. And you want the observers taking notes in the back because they will be given speaking roles. They will be members or critics of other topics as the day progresses or as your next meeting progresses. And what you'll find is that the members really, really dig in. They listen really well to what the critics have to say. The critic role is always a very powerful role. It could really sway the way uh, a team is going always to the positive. Um, it allows the team to sort of step back. It allows people to say, you know, you're at 100,000 feet. You need to get down to the ground. Or um, it allows people to say, you went right to detail before stepping back and really understanding the full breadth and depth of the challenge. The critic role is really important. And one thing I want your listeners to know is that when you start to assign people as members, critics, and observers, um, organizations get used to this. You'll run much more effective meetings, and they'll become very self-managing. The members are going to want to hear from the critics. The observers at the back will be bursting, waiting for their turn to get to be a member or a critic. And it's a very, very effective way to structure a half-hour meeting, a two-hour meeting, two-day meeting. Mm -hmm. And when we get the collision course going, I'm curious. People have a natural tendency to just sort of talk to the people that they know and are sort of affiliated with already. What are the means by which you get the collisions to happen? Okay, so Pete, I will say, you know, at the commercial level, so to speak, in the most sophisticated version of the formula, um, we use algorithms. So we literally use algorithms to solve for um, n times n minus one connection points where n is the number of people. So if there's, you know, 20 people, there's 20 times 19 connection points, and we let an algorithm assign people to teams in a way that makes sure that not only are they, are they on the right teams, but they're going to bump into other people on the other teams as they iterate. When you don't have an algorithm, you want to pay attention to who's on which team as best as you can. And you want to rotate people through a variety of topics during a three-hour meeting. Um, and you want to have a variety of meetings on those same topics. So I would recommend to your listeners that let's say you have a five-point agenda to talk about a specific challenge that you're trying to address or seize a big opportunity. Um, if you have five topics, cycle through those topics at least twice and feel free to cycle through those topics three times. So you should meet on them one through five, one topic through five, and then do that again and do that again. And with different people playing member critic observer roles on the different teams and rotating, um, you will have people bumping into each other uh, in the right way or approximating that as best as possible. And you'll see a real lift on the cross-pollination and the learning that's happening from one discussion to the next. Mm -hmm. Okay. Also understood here. Now there's a few approaches here that are, you know, differ from the norm. Could you share a word for the skeptic in terms of some of the eye-popping results that have come about in terms of getting the job done well and more efficiently than traditional approaches? 
Yes. So skeptics deserve to be skeptical. That's right. And the observers are observing. The skeptics yeah. are skepticking. <laughs> yes, exactly. And they deserve to be. I mean, there's a lot of different mousetraps out there that uh, profess to have solved, you know, uh, for how to go about solving things and just don't live up to that. Um, you know, speaking from experience, I would say the good news here is you can, you can try this yourself. So the next time you're having, you're planning to solve something, you're planning a meeting, um, start by inviting some of the non-usual suspects. And of course, you'll hear people say like, why is Bob or why is uh, Terry being invited to this, to this meeting? They have nothing to do with, with what we're talking about. Invite them nonetheless and be open about that. Um, take an iterative approach to the agenda items in your meeting. Even if you predetermine the agenda, if you don't feel comfortable leaving the agenda up to the group, uh, predetermine the agenda, have a finite number of topics, five, six, seven topics that you want to discuss to get after a challenge, and go through two cycles of meetings and assign a portion of your people as members and a portion of them as critics and judge for yourself. And that's doing it in a very sort of grassroots, brass tacks way. It only takes two hours or an hour meeting to see the difference between your normal meetings. And then you will have experimented with something that's not costing you money to do uh, that you can, you know, decide to amplify and do more of if it works. Um, and then if you're really, really interested, you know, read more about the formula and use it on a larger scale. Mm -hmm. Certainly. The only way to get skeptics to not be skeptical is to try something on a, on a small scale and then uh, scale it up. And so when you're in the midst of some of these conversations, do you have any favorite prompts or questions or scripts that you find yourself kind of reaching for again and again and again? Yeah, we, we counsel people uh, in, in a few ways. I, I like that question about prompts. And so uh, what would, you know, if you don't have customers in the room, what would your customers say? Um, if you don't have the regulator in the room, what would the regulator be saying? If you don't have any naysayers in the room, what would the naysayers or the cynics be saying? Um, if you don't, for some reason, have uh, the implementation angle in, in the or the PMO in the room, what would they be concerned about or what would they be saying? And then one other prompt that we give um, all the sponsors of the sessions that we do, which are usually, you know, a day and a half minimum, um, we say, you know, it, it, it's okay it's totally okay and very, very welcome. In fact, the job of the people who've been convened here is to speak their minds and, and open their hearts and say everything that needs to be said. The only thing that will be looked down upon is if you don't say something here and say it at the water cooler two weeks later. Mm -hmm. Put everything on the table here, not in two weeks. We're, we're all here. We're all here together to solve something and get after it. Um, say what has to be said here, not later. All right. Thank you. Well, tell me, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? Just that for your listeners, um, many of us have been conditioned that solving big challenges, whether at the team level, the business unit level, higher up, um, and getting people to change, that that's an arduous, uh, long life cycle, long task. And uh, what I want people to know is that solving and change can be incredibly fast when you approach the challenge in the right way. All right. Thank you. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Well, I love the movie The Matrix. Uh -huh. And I like it when Morpheus says to Neo, there's a difference between knowing the path and walking the path. All right. Thank you. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I really love uh, two books. And I don't know if you'd put them under the, the guise of research, but I, I do love Crossing the Chasm. 
and learned a tremendous amount from that book. Uh, Jeffrey Moore, the author, and then Jim Collins, Good to Great, is also one that I uh, refer and reflect back on regularly. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite tool? Something that helps you be awesome at your job? Something that helps me be awesome at my job is a full floor to ceiling whiteboard. Yeah. Okay. And how about a favorite habit? Intermittent fasting. Oh, now I've done that before. Tell me about it. So basically I eat between noon and eight at night, usually finish around seven and, and then I don't, don't eat, just drink water. And I find that that gets me up, uh, in a really good place. Um, the body gets used to it. I've got the right level of energy in the morning. I can get a lot of great work done. Um, I'm not wondering about what I'm going to eat. I'm not even thinking about it. I get right to work, um, or focus on my family. And then when noon hits, I eat. All right. And is there a particular diet that you share that really seems to connect and resonate with readers and listeners? Yes. Uh, requisite variety. Only variety can destroy variety. That really resonates uh, with people. Mm-hmm. And if folks want to learn more, get in touch, where would you point them? I'd point them to crackingcomplexity.com. Mm-hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? Bucket your challenges for the rest of your career for the rest of your career, look through the lens of requisite variety. Who are all the right people that I need to bring to something, not just the usual suspects. And when you look through the lens of, of the right variety of people, you will more often than not bring the right people to the, to the challenge. And that's half the battle. All right. Well, David, thank you for this. I wish you lots of luck with all the complexity you're cracking and have a good one. Thank you, Pete. You too. I got a real good kick out of David's steps here. And particularly, my favorites were constructing a really, really, really good question, which is nice to hear the emphasis with those reallys, as well as being proactive about getting folks on a real collision course because they're going to kind of fall into the roads and not ruts and not engage each other in new ways, which is what you want them to do. So I thought that was pretty smart to get really thoughtful, planful about making that happen, not leaving it to chance. So you get those great collisions. And with those questions, that brings me back to Hal Gregerson with the question bursts. Really helpful stuff there. Check out that episode. It was the first Hal Gregerson episode. And it is really handy in terms of what that sparks for you. And you can practically choose that really, really good question and lock it in because it makes all the difference. I recently read a book. It was short and fun and easy and it's old. It's called Obvious Adams, the story of a successful businessman. And the premise was that Great solutions often seem obvious on the other side of them once you're there. It's kind of like, no, duh, how come we haven't always been doing this? (laughs) And and so likewise, I find you're asking those questions. It's good to just make them real simple, real obvious, almost like you're just dumb in terms of, hey, what do customers really want? You can add an accent if you want. I mean, no disrespect. I, I grew up in Danville, Illinois. I got some farming community in my friends and neighbors you know, cornfields all around me. But you could add a an accent or a voice or a character to it if you want to make it real simple. You know, like sometimes I say I'm a simple boy from Danville, Illinois, and and this is kind of what I'm thinking. Not that we all talk that way, but you know, I, I'm doing a character where I'm just keeping it simple. I'm trying to take off the fancy strategy consulting, you know, data Excel hat and just get all right, what's up here? Okay. It's like what do customers want? Okay. And what aren't we giving to them? And How can we give that to them some more? Okay. And then the more that you just keep it dirt simple, I find that often prevents a lot of distractions and, you know, disruptions flowing. So 
the story of the book Obvious Adams is helpful along those lines. Like the guy just does what's obvious and has tremendous success. And how often do we just not do the obvious thing? And legend has it that a legendary ad man, David Ogilvie, gave it to what some call the greatest living copywriter today, Gary Bensavenga. And he said that is a key to his success and philosophy. And he's passed it to another copywriter. I like the lore associated with copywriters. I think that's kind of fun. But anywho, obvious Adams, ask really, really, really good questions. Don't try to get too fancy with them. And I think you'll often be pleased with the results by taking the simple route, even you're solving a complex question. So again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F460. Or you could tap it in app in the link right there. And if you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest. And that next guest is Eric Fisher. We are talking about productivity. He's the host of Beyond the To-Do List. I've had him long ago on the show and he's got a whole lot of more stuff to share this time around. So I hope to catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links, as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. Let's jump into Peppa's world of play. Look for spring flowers, hunt for muddy puddles, and bravely explore exciting places with Peppa play sets. Peppa Pig. Inspiring kid confidence.